Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. And friends, we're in the um, midst of a series that we're looking at um, our, our two d- different denominations and kind of the founding fathers and mothers and, and others that have been important to our denominations. And last week we talked about John and Charles Wesley, their mother Susanna, and um, Thomas Koch and Francis Asbury. So this week I'm going to turn it over to Steve and let him share a little bit about uh, Lutherans. Okay. Um, so one of the things that our branches of the family tree have in common is that there are adjectives that are made from the names of the people associated with us. Mm-hmm. That like Wesley and me. Oh, you, yeah, that must be someone named Wesley or the Meth- uh, Luther. Oh, yeah, there, there was a person named Luther. And even though um, Methodism is another sort of synonymous, synonymous name for that that tradition, mm-hmm. and Lutherans too uh, didn't originally go around calling themselves Lutheran. That was a, a an insult that was lobbed at them. <laughs> um, uh, Lutherans, uh, or at least Luther in the movement that he was trying to be a part of, um, wasn't intending, it, as you said about Wesley, what, nobody's trying to start their own religion or break mm-hmm. away. Uh, they, it was more like they got kicked, <laughs> more like they got kicked out. Um, <laughs> See, at least my folks didn't get kicked out. Yeah, oh, well, until, until Wesley started getting kicked <laughs> out of churches. A little bit yeah. later, but yeah. uh, I believe your founder was <laughs> preaching on the tombstones at one point. Uh, uh, yeah. But, um, uh, Luther himself would have had the the movement and was for a while called uh, ev- they call themselves evangelicals, um, which is weird because that word is morphed in its meaning in a bunch of different ways in twenty first century America, mm-hmm. and the roots are obviously it comes from the same root euangelion, which is good news, and and Luther saw what his movement was about. Uh, was about hearing the gospel as good news again, <laughs> um, yeah. and his his own experience that maybe it felt like it hadn't hadn't been good news for a long, long time. Um, Martin Luther, as a historical figure, is one of those people that at least chances are people know something about or some snapshot about. So I, I don't know how much details is important to spend, but maybe just some some high points as far as they're important to what the movement has has become. Um, I can remember like a, a Simpsons episode from like decades ago where there's a passing Lutheran reference where Lisa creates a little miniature culture. Uh, out of people who live inside her old tooth. Uh, and she sees them through a microscope, nailing things to the door of their little tooth castle, and she goes, I've created Lutherans. <laughs> so, like, like the, 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 the details of, of Luther's life are at least widely enough known as to have become a Simpsons joke years ago. Um, but um, kind of in, in some ways, there's some interesting parallels between the way you told the story of Wesley's life and uh, Martin Luther. So, so Luther... Um, uh, went into uh, the, the monastery and into priesthood uh, in his early adulthood. He had had this really dramatic experience uh, where he was um, uh, scared in the middle of a thunderstorm and prayed out, crying out, saying, God, I'll become a monk if you... Well, he actually, he calls out St. Anne. He calls out to St. Anne, I'll become a monk if you save my life. Um, and goes and becomes a priest and, and becomes a monk. Uh, was a part of the Augustinian order, um, and, and Roman Catholicism in the time um, is not monolithic, but even like today, there's branches. There, you know, there are, there are Augustinian monks. There are um, well, now there's Jesuits. There are you know, Benedictines. Um, there are different schools, and so uh, Luther is a part of the Augustinian tradition. Uh, very, very heavy on scholarship and on, on study, that kind of thing. Um, and in a lot of ways, rigorous as far as the monastic life goes. I mean, all monks to begin with are, <laughs> are going to be rigorous and ascetic, uh, especially especially in, in Luther's experience. Um, 
and he was a teacher. In fact, he was a, a Bible teacher, uh, someone who was uh, meant to train future priests as well, um, and was in the midst of his own wrestling with his own personal like wrestling with sin and guilt, and also trying to dig into the sources, the, the, the scriptures themselves on their own terms, in their original languages uh, as mm-hmm. much as possible. So what's going on in, in Luther's world at the time? Of course, this is the era in which most of Europe is all just sort of blanket Roman Catholic Christian because that's what there is. There had been a number of movements calling for reform in a century or two before him in other pockets in uh, in Europe, and they had largely just been dismissed as heretics. Uh, so Jan Haas is, born, is, is burned at the stake. Uh, for calling for a number of reforms that Luther would call for, and in in some ways, it's it's just the the twists of of fate and of history mm-hmm. that Luther, calling for similar changes, doesn't get burned at the stake and happens to live a time when the Gutenberg printing press is around that his ideas can become published and become can take hold in people's minds and there can be a popular uh, acceptance of those ideas, which then allows for um, powerful enough figures to protect Luther's life when there was a time when he was running for his life and was uh, could have been rounded up and, and killed or, or put to death. So in some ways, Luther isn't doing anything new. In some ways, even the particular changes he was calling for when he got to that mm-hmm. point were ones that others before him and around him were calling for, um, but he became the sort of maybe lightning rod sort of figure. But it, it, it came at a time when everybody is nominally Christian because you're all, you just live in the territory of the mm-hmm. Holy Roman Empire. And um, so in, in this era in which the, the institutional church um, had a great deal of interpretive power over people's lives in that uh, worship life was pretty much entirely in Latin uh, in a time and a place where most people didn't speak Latin anymore, and so that meant you were going to gather to watch basically a performance that you might mm-hmm. understand some of, but not much, um, and uh, in which it was sort of assumed that by the performing of this ritual act, we were doing something that impressed God. We were doing something that re-sacrificed Jesus week in, week out uh, with the, the celebration of communion. They would have called mm-hmm. it the, the, the sacrifice of Mass. Um, and that's part of going on in Luther's world. Also part of that piety is the importance of confessing whatever sins you have committed and then going to your local religious professional, your priest, who will tell you what things you have to do in order to be assured that you are forgiven. And a, a really important thing in Luther's piety was um, that he really, really wrestled with, have, have I have I done that well enough? Did I remember all the things I did wrong? And what? Oh my goodness, what if there's something I forgot? Uh, or what if I said I was really sorry, but there's some, still some part of, the, of that sin that I'm not, to be honest, that was enjoyable. Or, or I'm you know, just, and so there was this, he was, he was increasingly aware that that system didn't make sense or, or wasn't really complete. Like, mm-hmm. am I really, is it is it a matter of me saying the words right that makes me forgiven? And what if I didn't mean it right or what I, I, I want to mean it, but I don't know? I mean, there's all this self-doubt, all this wrestling, in some ways similar to what you described with Wesley, sort of this yeah. doubting of mm-hmm. this salvation. Um, and what salvation meant in the system that Luther grew up in was it was this very mechanistic sort of you do these things and if you've done them acceptably, uh, a religious professional a priest will tell you that you have and you will have access to being saved. But it largely had a lot to do with what you do and um, how well you continue to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the background, too, going on was this doctrine that it had emerged within Catholic piety at the time um, that... Um, after one died, 
some very, 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 very holy people were right into heaven because they were super holy. And the damned, well, they're just damned. But then there were many people, mm-hmm. the teaching went, that um, still died as jerks, died with sins uh, that were on their permanent record that they had not dealt with and that they went to this in-between place called purgatory. And mm-hmm. it was ultimately good news if you ended up in purgatory because eventually you would uh, get into heaven. But there had they've accumulated this sort of whole... Um, theological uh, industry, basically, on the idea of, well, what happens if you die and you're still a jerk? Uh, Oh, well, there must be a place where God takes care of it, burning away and purging away your sins. And on top of that, there had now become this idea in in the era, in the generation or two before Luther, that uh, somebody could do something to get you time off of this place in purgatory. So, as even though it was good news to be in purgatory because you were eventually going to go to heaven, and it was good news because your sins were getting burned away, uh, it was terrible and unpleasant to be there, so if somebody could pay money so that additional masses could be said in your honor, that would take time off purgatory. Or if somebody could buy uh, a letter of indulgence for, that was authorized by the church at the time, you could get time off mm-hmm. of purgatory. Uh, and that that begins for Luther to... It, it, it's, it's like a loose thread that you start pulling at. And I don't know that at first Luther realized just how far this thing was going to unravel. But in, in his day, he was initially concerned with the, that, the way all those things came to overlap. And what first maybe seemed like the biggest outrage was the maybe unofficial teaching of the church with indulgences that you could mm-hmm. pay money and get, t- get time out of purgatory for a loved one. And even if maybe... The official teaching of Rome would have been stricter or tighter on that. In the uh, the boots on the ground, grassroots places where Luther mm-hmm. lived, there were people whose job was to peddle indulgences. And the, the tagline, as it's gotten translated into English, was every time a coin of the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. I mean, the, the idea was basically this was a pay-to-play, cash-to-get-out-of-purgatory thing. And this gets Luther questioning. And he goes, well, wait a second. I thought that having your sins purged away, this is ultimately uh, like about becoming holy and pure and all that, so is it good or bad to be in this place called purgatory? And then, wait a second, if the Pope has the ability to grant this document called an indulgence to let people out of purgatory, shouldn't he just do that for everybody out of the kindness of his heart? Wouldn't mm-hmm. if, if he can just do that, why, why wouldn't he just do that? And then that, I think, becomes the point where Luther turns a corner and asks a yet more fundamental question, which is... Who, who says that this is how the system works? You know, it, it becomes a question of authority for Luther because so much of, of the religious system Luther grew up into mm-hmm. uh, sort of assumed just the authority of the institutional church as institutional mm-hmm. church. And over enough centuries, it had become, well, you know, whatever the head uh, of our church, you know, the Bishop of Rome, you know, the Pope, whatever he says, that must be officially true. Uh, even though, to be really, really honest, that idea was something that emerged over centuries. I mean, like, to be very, very honest, nowhere in the Bible is anything like that close. Yeah. And even in the first several centuries, there's a lot of question: how does the church make decisions together? How do we deal with new issues or new questions? For a number of centuries, it was, let's go through the big, difficult process of a giant council where we all mm-hmm. wrestle it out and St. Nicholas slaps heretics <laughs> in the face and we end up with a creed or we end up with a decision and mm-hmm. then you got to live with it. Um, but by the time Luther lives... Uh, in the, he was born in 1483, so in the early 1500s. Um, 
there is a system that had been inherited that whatever the Pope officially decreed, this is how it is, and almost like Supreme Court precedent in the United mm-hmm. States, that's how it is, and future Popes could like tweak or redirect, but pretty much like policy is policy now. Um, but And Luther starts to pull at that and go, where did we get that idea that there was this figure who could make those kind of determinations, and what, what on what authority do we grant that? And that, that forces him to go back to the scriptures, which the, the, the Roman Church had never lost, but had found a way to put in, a, in another language that nobody spoke so that nobody could check on it, and also it came through the lens of what the official institutional mm-hmm. church said it meant. Um, so Luther digs into the scriptures, digs in, and while all that's going on as he's wrestling with what seems to be inconsistencies in the authority of the question of the church, he's also living with the question of um, how, how can I ever have any hope or confidence at all that I really am saved because I keep messing up, I keep sinning, and on top of that, I'm not even really sure of myself that I'm ever completely, perfectly sorry for my sins or that I've ever completely you know, repented. And that drives him to, as he's studying the uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, his moment, his, his sort of big moment, um, is this discovery that it's God who justifies us uh, on the basis of trusting in God rather mm-hmm. than on what we've accomplished. And again, th- we can have a whole separate conversation someday about how what Luther's reading in Romans is slightly different than the issues Paul is dealing with when the questions are about being circumcised or eating kosher and Luther's dealing with purgatory and confessing to uh, a priest. Um, but there's enough continuity there that Luther realized he was onto something and that, that eventually turned his whole picture of the Christian faith really on its head. Instead of it being... The Christian faith is a list of things you have to do in order to earn or get something from God or to not have it taken away from you. He came to discover, and then the more and more he read in Scripture, the more he discovered it was there all over the place, that it was about God who does the saving, who does the acting, who does the claiming, who's already done the forgiving, Mm -hmm. and these are not up for debate because these are things that God has accomplished. Um, And that what we bring to the picture is our ability to trust in what God has done. And then the more and more Luther dug, he he came to the conclusion more and more that even our our faith turns out to be a gift as well. Um, As all this is happening he realizes this is going to mean, if, if, he, if he's right about any of these things, that this would mean some pretty significant changes in the practice of the church, beginning with ground zero was how we deal with this indulgence thing, mm-hmm. um, and can we really pay money to get somebody else out of this place that we're not really even sure from the Bible exists at all. And he's also teaching at the same time young priests and what we would call seminarians now, um, the scriptures and more and more digging into wait a second the whole thing I've had backwards you know it, it's been it's really been about God's free gift of grace in Christ and not about what I bring to the picture and the moment I'm focusing on myself it's always going to sound like bad news but the moment I'm focusing on Christ it will be good news um, uh, so all those things are going on to, to the point where Luther did what scholars in his era did which is to post subjects for public debate up in the public place you put things up on the, like like today well once upon a time you'd go to the community bulletin board we don't even do bulletin boards so well anymore yeah. now people would post it on social media and mm-hmm. then there'd be a bunch of angry comments afterwards but he, he posted what we now call the 95 theses um, and this wasn't a systematic theology this wasn't like Luther's answers for everything this was 95 propositions for debate simply on the subject of indulgences and this was meant to be like starting points for conversation this is meant to be all right i've been thinking this through i've been reading through the scriptures i've been i know my church history i found some inconsistencies on how we do this indulgence thing i'm not really sure it's a good idea talk this out with me and he meant it as a scholarly debate as Mm -hmm. people who if you also are a student of the scripture and you care about this let's hash this out right there in the place where he was in wittenberg 
Um, this uh, becomes, on the one hand, very, very popular, and he lived at the time, as I say, when Gutenberg is around, um, and the, the printing press makes it possible for these things to be well, well publicized and shared very uh, fast and far and wide, and also begins Luther sort of dis- realizing more and more, like the more he pulls at this thread, there's a lot of other stuff that would have to change if I'm taking the scripture seriously, which then sends him also on the project of translating the scriptures into the language of the people. For him, that was German, uh, and going back to the original sources, to Greek and Hebrew, rather than a Latin translation of those things, which had other layers of error and agenda and, mm-hmm. and things like that uh, put in them. So maybe a, a one, one case study, one example. Um, uh, a famous saying of Jesus in the Gospels, uh, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. This is like Jesus' quintessential sermon at the beginning of Mark. The translation that Luther's day would have heard from the Latin was do penance and believe, and penance being the technical name for the sacrament of going to the priest, Mm-hmm. praying your roses or doing whatever the priest says to do as though that was what Jesus meant when Jesus could not have envisioned a system where you went to a priest and sat down in a closed booth and prayed and then had mm. beads and rosaries and things like that um, but even on a translation note Luther just goes wait a second the way we translate affects the way we hear this and is it possible that hearing things in translation uh, maybe a noble attempt at a translation but one with its own agenda or issues that maybe nobody realized at the time mm. we've skewed over enough time what the scriptures were saying all along. So Luther sees his movement as going back to the the, the scriptures, going back to uh, the scriptures, uh, the, the the Bible, and letting them speak on their own terms, on their own authority. Even if that meant dismantling a lot of the other structures or institutions that had gone along the way. At the same time, while other people, while Luther's ideas are getting popular, the other people were having similar kind of realizations in other pockets of the church, and. Others were coming to different conclusions about how much of the old system they should keep or chuck. Um, And there were others who were like, you know what, anything that smacks of this old movement from candles and saints and things like that, we've got to get rid of it all. And Luther tends to find himself more in a middle ground of, if it's not getting in the way of the gospel, we can hold on Mm -hmm. to it. If that's helpful, fine. So as a movement, Lutheranism classically has held on to um, things like uh, a lectionary for for preaching texts and a liturgical year and... um, uh, the, 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 the trappings of liturgy that have emerged mm-hmm. over the years, but not to define itself that way. Um, as, as time went on, eventually, Luther and his, what became sort of a budding movement of other people who were part of, uh, on board with him, had to put together sort of a, well, what's your movement all about? What is, what is it that you all think you're doing here? Um, and they don't come up with a book of worship. Uh, they don't come up um, with a particular order or structure for how their congregations need to look. But in some ways, it's a, it's a, it's a doctrinal, it's a, it's a, it's a theological movement. Um, and so there, there's different issues than, say, Wesley lived with in, in England. Um, and while Luther certainly would have said it's important to live and take your faith seriously, I think the particular issues that Luther's living with are different enough that he's most concerned, you know what, there's going to be days I don't feel like it, but i got to trust that God's grace is for me even on the days my heart is not transformed. Um, because that's sort of what he had been living with. Um, and uh, what, what came out of that, uh, there's a whole book of confessions that Lutheran leaders, teachers, and preachers uh, ascribe to or affirm in their ordination, the Book of Concord, which is this big reference book size, Harry Potter novel size book that includes some short things, uh, includes Luther's small catechism, which is meant to be sort of a family handbook on the mm-hmm. faith. It includes larger things that are meant to be sort of a summary of like, here's the places that are really not all that, all that different from what's come before us, and other places that are like, here's where we're different from the Roman movement, um, the Roman church. Um, 
And that's sort of what lands us with Lutheranism. It then after that has to continue on um, in a, what is becoming a divided Europe where little fiefdoms and small kingdoms and territories are ruled by different kings or princes or whatever, some who retain allegiance to Rome and some break away. And so the, you end up with a pocket pockets of Lutheran sort of affiliated states or city-states mm-hmm. or little fiefdoms and then uh, Roman Catholic affiliated ones. And at this point, uh, it, it's that really, really messy time where um, Europe is like uh, enmeshed in state and empire and religion are all sort of tangled up in mm-hmm. each other and it gets very, very... It, terrible things happen in that era in the name of religion uh, on, on both the the Roman Catholic side and the Protestant side, and you end up with things like the Hundred Years' War, which basically is a war of uh, whether we're going to be Protestant or Catholic in this or that territory, um, and it was terrible and bloody all by people who were convinced they were doing it right and that everybody else was, <laughs> was doing it wrong. Um, I mean, there's lots of ways, rabbit trails down from there, but there, there's Luther's maybe... The, the, what leads him to what becomes Lutheranism. Along the way, there are other folks, like another big name in early Lutheranism is Phil Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon, who maybe you could uh, think of as Luther's, as the first systemat- uh, systematician or systematic theologian of what becomes Lutheranism, who took like the, the, the class lectures and notes and rambling occasional things that mm-hmm. Luther would write and tried to cobble like a, well, let's put this all together kind of a thing. Um, and in some ways is very much on board with what Luther does, but also in some ways um, uh, he doesn't quite have the the charisma, maybe. uh, At Mm -hmm. at least this is my personal bias, I guess. Where Luther not only has uh, done done his work and shows the receipts theologically, but also has this, like, personal fire and flair and can say things that are, you know, outrageous, but also endearing in a sense. And Philip Melanchthon, like many systematicians are, is much more measured and studied and... Mm -hmm. um, Let's 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 not get carried away. <laughs> um, and then from there, they had to do. It sounds like, in a lot of ways, what you talked about last time, Erica, that the Methodist movement had to do in America, which was, huh? Now, as we're growing, and there are places w- that won't burn us at the stake, we are looking to have leadership for those places. Mm-hmm. So the teaching and raising up of pastors and leaders, and wh- what are we going to require? What are, what are the things they need to know? What are the essentials? And ah, uh, some of these people we've trained up, uh, they have got to cover lots and lots of places. So we we went through the same wrestling about yeah. mm, how often should we celebrate communion and how uh, what, what do we think that means? So all those things are lived out questions that come out of the the boots on the ground reality of we don't have enough people to cover the places that we need to cover um, in the ways they live that out. You know, as I'm listening to you, Stephen, I'm hearing you talk about Luther. And, I mean, we've talked about Luther different times, and sure. I... Um, most of what I know about him, besides just the general knowledge that most people like, you know, Wittenberg and that, those kind of things, I've learned from you and from doing this podcast. But um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, as I, as I look at Luther's early life as as a priest, as mm-hmm. a as a monastic within the Roman Catholic Church, um, and, and as we said in last week's episode, there's different types of monastics, and, and sure. obviously he was a, a scholarly one who was teaching future Catholic priests. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, and maybe you have some input on this, if if Luther had been more of a Benedictine mm-hmm. or, or Franciscan kind of monk um, that was mostly just dedicated to, to prayer and, right. and not so much to the scholarly aspect, yeah. do you think that we would have the movement that we have now that is right. known as Lutherism? Because... He wouldn't have been spending so much time with the Greek and the Hebrew and, right. and, and looking at scriptures in that way. That's a good question. I, I guess I think, um, had it not been Luther, 
I think the presence of people before him, like uh, John Haas, um, and I'm, I'm going to forget some others, but uh, others who were uh, suggesting similar kind of reforms before him, and the fact that a generation or two after him, you've got folks in Switzerland, you've got Zwingli around mm-hmm. the same time as Luther, who, mm-hmm. uh, and then John Calvin, and then you, you've got um, what would eventually become uh, like the, the Presbyterian movement in, in uh, Scotland and, and mm-hmm. England, places like that. It seems to me like eventually somebody would have stumbled on to the, some form of the, the same kind of criticism. Because in a sense, one of the things we forget is, or at least I, maybe I left out of the story here, is... What's going on in the 16th century for Luther and the idea of going back to the original scriptures is in some ways an echo of what the wider European culture was going through in the Renaissance a hundred years before that when mm-hmm. they went back to the classics yeah. of the Greeks and the Romans and rediscovered, uh, oh my goodness, there's lovely art and philosophy mm-hmm. and things like that. And in, in a sense, as that movement rippled out into the institutional church, people said, hey, maybe we should go back to our sources too, which are also Greek, and oh, oh wait, mm-hmm. wait a second. And at that point people doing that discovered what the scriptures had been saying all along. Um, so I could imagine a parallel history where it's not a Lutheran movement, but it's a somebody else movement um, that would have tried to do the same thing. And I guess I think, it, just just from a, a purely historical sense, um, part of what makes Luther succeed is not that he's the only one who ever had his ideas. He mm-hmm. happened to be one and who, who could say what he had to say well, but the ability to get those ideas out to other people so that they could spread um, is, is, I do think, a pretty big difference in why he's not burned at the stake and others before him who said mm-hmm. similar things were burned at the stake. Um, and that there might have been a, a different kind, it might have looked different, but I think at some point that voice calling for reform would have happened. It, it, the, the flavor of it might have been different, and it mm-hmm. might have avoided schism. I, I don't know that. I, you and I both used to know a colleague, now of blessed memory, who used to ask the hypothetical question, could there have been a world in which Lutheranism became one more order in the Catholic Church, like mm-hmm. Benedictines or, or Franciscans or Jesuits? Um, and I could have also imagined a world like that as well, but that would have been dependent on the institutional church accepting what Luther mm-hmm. said and said, yeah, you can continue to teach this way, uh, but we're keeping you in-house instead of you know, making you a heretic. But that, I think that would have required the institutional church to swallow a lot of its pride, too, and to say, huh, there's a lot that we, uh, there's a lot we've had wrong. And the ability to acknowledge one's own wrongness is, I don't think this is a, mm-hmm. this is a uh, Roman Catholic or Protestant thing, this is a human thing. We're not good at admitting where we are wrong or could be wrong. Um, so I, maybe it's inevitable that some more people would have gotten burned at the stake or kicked out or something. I don't know. And were the predecessors to Luther who had these same kind of ideas but just didn't have the way to get that out, were mm-hmm. they priests as well? Were they laity? Were they, uh, was it a mix depending yeah. on who we're talking about? I'm trying to remember now. And this is this is like a deep cut in church history about uh, some of those people who came before him. Because those are names I'm not familiar with. Like yeah. I, I, just, I know Luther and then... Jan Hus lives in, I think, what would now be the Czech Republic or somewhere around there. Okay. Um, and my guess is that some of those folks uh, who were inheritors of, of his teaching or his movement after he was burned at the stake um, might have gotten folded into the Moravian movement, which has okay. happened. In that. And so, like in mm-hmm. some ways, some of these groups um, uh, continued to live on in different ways uh, afterwards. Um, my guess this is this is just a, a, a dart at a dartboard kind of a thing. But my guess is that the voices that were calling for reform at that time 
were likely only to be people who would have been educated well enough to know why what the church, the institutional church mm-hmm. was telling them was not what was the, in the scripture. So that meant you had to have the ability to read, and on top of that, to read both Latin and then, the, say, the original text mm-hmm. to get access to them. So because this was a pre-internet era, and this was not a place where people could go to their local library, um, even if you knew how to read, to go get the text, my guess is this was the kind of thing that could have only at that moment come from people who were educated well and could compare notes and say, wait a second, the Bible doesn't... I mean, this is an era where people mm-hmm. don't own their own Bibles, so they can't just say, well, wait a second, preacher, I read this in the Bible, and what you say doesn't line up with what I read there. Um, so I, I, I don't know how else it could have happened, in, just knowing the other parameters of that moment. But interestingly, one of the things that Luther tried to, to insist on in his movement is to get away from the idea that you had to be... Um, a priest in order to rightly interpret mm-hmm. scripture. You had to be the pope or a bishop or something like that. And there's a famous line of Luther's about something like, you know, if you're just a, a farmhand in the field with the Bible, you could be more knowledgeable than the uh, the pope in, in Rome. Um, and there's something, I, I get that. I, there's something that is noble about the idea of just just that you read the scriptures mm-hmm. on their own terms rather than having to have somebody give you the cliff notes that they assure you, oh, this is what it's really all about. But I also know, too, there's, there's a way sometimes that gets misused as sort of a, I don't need to pay attention to what's going on in context of the scripture. I don't need to do any study on this. It's just, I read this verse and this is what I think it means, so I'm going to make it mean. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. there's, every, everything can be mis, misused or, or the pendulum can swing in both ways. And in Luther's day, it was so much, oh, ordinary people can't be trusted with the scriptures. Mm-hmm. The pendulum swings to the side of only trust what the priest or the bishop, the, the bishop or the pope behind him tells you. And then on the flip side, it can become so much... It's just me and my Bible. I don't need to listen to anybody. Yeah. That and maybe that's a piece of American religion across denominations. There's sort mm-hmm. of a, I don't need anybody. And and in may, maybe in in a way that's a part of why we struggle with even the idea of accountability groups or small mm-hmm. groups or things like that. I mean, we talked a little bit about the challenge of doing that piece of Methodist uh, piety in in America. And yeah. I think part of it is so much of the culture we live in is this. It's me on my own. Whatever I come up with is cool for me, and you can't tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there's something noble about like uh, I'm not going to be a jerk and, and uh, be judgmental toward people. But on the same, uh, by the same token, it's really easy for that to be. You can't. I can't learn from you. I, I have no need to. It's just I read the verse and whatever it makes me feel like that's what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, and you lose something there too. So it, it, in in a way, we're still we're trying we're still trying to to live with the after effects of the question Luther raised about authority, about, okay, if it's not the Pope, then authority rests in the scriptures, okay. Um, and one of the famous early Lutheran uh, creeds, sola scriptura, long as mm-hmm. sola gratia, grace alone, and sola fide, they were really great about Latin creeds, or Latin <laughs> uh, mottos. Um, but it's still living out, the, okay, if it's only scripture, great, but what happens when we get two mm-hmm. people in the room reading the same scripture who come to different conclusions about it? How do we how do we deal with that? And do we just play the game of who's got more stack of Bible verses on their side? Do we say, well, this? I mean, there, it becomes messy. So even though, in a sense, Luther thought he had solved the authority question by saying the Pope isn't infallible after all, just go back and read your Bibles. In a sense, that opened a different can of worms that we've been living with for four five hundred years now. Uh- when you're talking about the indulgences and Luther questioning his own faith, and you even mentioned it, it, it sounds a lot like Wesley when he was questioning his before yeah. the before the Aldersgate moment. Um, and, and I'm just thinking, um, I had a question, and now I, but I, just thinking about those indulgences and in the whole idea of buying uh, a person out of purgatory. I'm 
pretty sure it's purgatory that our book of discipline wesley says it's just an, an abomination basically yeah, it's yeah. just L- completely L- stupid and, and pointless and not right yeah, yeah and i think luther would have said that did say that pretty clearly eventually like and when he's when he's writing the, the 95 theses it's still very much in the spirit of academic debate of okay we've inherited this system where everybody told us there's this place called purgatory where'd that come from and on what basis mm-hmm. do we believe that and then yeah, later in his writings luther is just like clearly if if I'm going to play by my own rules and go back to the scriptures, there's no mention of purgatory in the scriptures. This can't be something that we teach or confess or believe. Mm-hmm. And purgatory is an answer to a question that you only need to ask if you don't think Jesus has really saved you. Like, if it, mm-hmm. if it's if I really believe Jesus has dealt with my sin, past, present, and future, even the stuff I haven't gotten around to doing yet, <laughs> um, then the answer to what happens about sins I haven't confessed or something like that, well, Jesus has dealt with them. Same mm-hmm. way he's, you know, at the cross is dealt with. Um, and... There's still the question, I think, that Lutherans honestly need to answer of, how do I deal with the fact that, um, persistent sinner that I am, I'm likely to die still a jerk. There may be some ways I have improved. Uh, I will grant that much to my Wesleyan uh, brothers and sisters. Maybe I will have improved some. But to be honest, there's a lot of me that is just plain selfish. And maybe I'm not, like, mustache-twirling, black hat-wearing villain, uh, but there's lots of me where the just the rottenness just poisons stuff in me. And... When I die, uh, and when we talk about resurrection life, they're, they're in the new creation. It's not going to be heaven for anybody else if I'm still the jerk that I am right now. So how do we deal with that? And like, in a way, like we still have to wrestle with that mm-hmm. answer. Um, and purgatory solved that by saying, well, you just go to purgatory until you're full-baked. Um, and Luther isn't comfortable with that um, because the idea of purgatory seems made up. Um, but in, in some ways, Lutherans, I think, have to honestly own the answer, especially for us as a tradition that just sort of like own front page we are saint and sinner at the same mm-hmm. time not I'm working on my way and hopefully well, I'll be only saint by the time I die but nope even when I die there's going to be some selfish junk in me um, and Jesus loves me as I am but when I get to glory in order for it to be enjoyable for anybody else <laughs> I shouldn't be that idiot I am uh, what, what, how will that work I don't know um, but I suppose the, I mean part of an answer might be the same way that I believe that um the clumsiness in me right now, the, the new creation version of me, uh, won't have those those mm-hmm. de- defects that aren't essential to who I am. That God can make me over in such a way that I'm still me and yet also not a jerk. That that maybe <laughs> the jerk part of me isn't isn't woven and is isn't dyed in the wool. You know, like that that's accidental, <laughs> not not uh, at the core of my essence. So you just need to take on a Methodist belief in perfection in love, yeah. and, and not the the idea that we'd be perfect by the time we die. I mean, even Wesley would never say that. Uh, but the idea that we're working on that, and then in that moment, right as we're on the cusp between this life and the next, that something happens between us and Jesus, uh-huh. and then and I, that I, takes care of the. Pr- <laughs> I think in some way, like that's what Lutherans have to say. It's sort of a, I'm just going to leave it in Jesus' hands. That Jesus loves me as a jerk, but I'm uh-huh. not going to be a jerk forever. And I think sometimes we forget, to be honest. Sometimes Lutherans, I think, forget that that second piece of it is like that we can be so, so focused on God loves me even while I'm a sinner and a jerk and don't be judgmental about people's... I I get that. And at the same time, we are not great sometimes at saying um, maybe part of what God is doing in my life is making me into a new creation that is less of a jerk. Mm -hmm. And instead of treating sin as just a matter of like 
red marks on your permanent file or something like that. Th there's something in me that is broken that I don't want to be broken anymore. There's something in me that is, Luther's way would be to say, bent in on self, mm -hmm. and I don't want to be bent in on myself anymore. Um, and I keep twisting myself back into that contorted shape in new and exciting ways, and God keeps working on me and pulling me apart, even though just as I am right now, complete and total mess that I am, mm -hmm. um, I'm beloved. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's a whole bunch of mess about what Luther's movement's all about. So at the very beginning, Steve, you mentioned that you know the Lutheran movement was not going to be Luther. You know, Lutheranism was kind of a, a pun mm -hmm. on Luther's name, just like Methodism was sure. on the methodology of Wesleyan's. But he wanted being called evangelical. Yeah. And yes, in today's day and age, in 2019, that means a whole slew of things depending on how, yeah. who you talk to. But I, I thought it was interesting. You said you know, it was, um, how did you phrase that? You like the goodness, you know, the good news again, like uh -huh. bringing that back. So how, you know, how had the Catholic Church kind of lost that, for those that maybe not be... I think Luther's critique would have been that Luther's convinced what makes the gospel good news is that the, the emphasis is always on what God has done for us in Christ as an accomplished fact. Mm -hmm. And that's given without strings, without a catch, without a you have to do this first. Um, and that means also, Luther's want to say, God's the one who always... Uh, pulls us out on the dance floor, that God's always the one who invites us in, who, moves, mm -hmm. who, who grabs a hold of us, um, even while we're total messes, and even when we're turned dead set away from God. Um, and that what it had become in his day was um, an impossible system of religious math, you know, mm -hmm. of have you done enough stuff to be good enough to get into this level of post-mortem experience and well mm -hmm. I was good enough to make it to purgatory and then I'm going to have to go for extra credit after that to get into heaven or oh no I've done enough to get into the VIP club that in some ways and I don't mean to, to speak ill of scouting as an organization because I don't make it that far as a scout but I made it enough in Cub Scouts <laughs> to like to get the feel of you keep working hard to get your merit badge you keep working hard uh, with merit badges you get to the next level and I get that if you're trying to instill hard work and, mm -hmm. and uh a variety of experiences for kids in scouting. As as a religion, that's always going to end up being bad news because it always comes back to you didn't yeah. do enough, you didn't do enough, you did. and there's mm -hmm. always the nagging fear of did I do enough? Did I do mm -hmm. enough? Did I? And so what what seems to be good news uh, as Luther sees it is that the gospel all along it's not something new. And Luther says I didn't invent this. This is what you know God's been saying all along is this wasn't about what you bring to the picture. This isn't about you have to do something. This is about what Jesus has done already. There's a, there's a, a line of Luther's in um, one of the theses for uh, what's now called the Heidelberg Disputation. It was going to be a scholarly debate in Heidelberg, hence the Heidelberg Disputation name, in 1520, um, maybe 1518. And um, uh, one of the last points for debate, he says, is the law keeps saying, do this to us, and it's never done. Grace says, believe in this one, and at once everything is already done. Mm -hmm. And like, I think for Luther, that's the core of it. Mm -hmm. That if for all your life you've just been hearing one voice after another saying, do this, and then telling you you didn't do enough, you didn't do good enough, you didn't do good enough, and then to hear somebody say, it wasn't a thing you had to do, just trust me, it's all covered, you're, 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 you're covered, it's all done. Um, that's relief, that's good news, that's, that's freedom, that's peace. Um, uh, and that, that's, I think, what Luther sees as making this good news. Excellent. Well, any parting words for us from Luther or anyone else from the Lutheran movement? Um, yeah, uh, the, Luther's last words, his last written words at least, since we're in the, the tradition of saying people's last words, Luther's last words are, we are beggars, this is true. And I love that notion that for this guy who saw in his lifetime what was emerging as a, as a movement and knew this mm -hmm. was going to last and had become this figure that people were celebrating in a sense, um, to know that like 
even at our best, we're, we're people's empty hands, and that's okay. It's not like he was saying that defeatedly, like, oh, all that work, and I'm still just a beggar, but had this sense of, like, we got empty hands, and God gives us what we need, even to the very end, that he was okay with that, that that's, it's okay to be held there. That seems okay to me. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll join you for more conversation next time. See you guys.